professionalism. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to panel discussion two at the second biannual and possibly last or not um, <laughs> listening in the sound kitchen, Princeton University. Um, my name is Ted Coffey, and I'm the moderator for this uh, discussion, which is loosely structured. Maybe we'll find out, but list, uh, frontiers in music today, electronic, electroacoustic music. Um, I'd just like to briefly introduce the panelists. Um, I'll just, for fun, in reverse alphabetical order, last name, um, Todd Winkler from Brown University, uh, Pauline Oliveros from RPI, Mills, and Kingston, New York in general, um, Paul Lansky, from Princeton University, uh, Curtis Bond from RPI, and John Appleton from Dartmouth College. And um, I'd just like to say that, it's, that I've had the pleasure of studying with three of these people, um, John, Pauline, and Paul Lansky. So it's fun and a, a treat and slightly trippy for me to be here. Um, so I think what we should do um, is just dig right in and start maybe by articulating what is a frontier in electroacoustic music. Um, and we'll start with John, if that's okay. John? <clears throat> maybe you'll say something contentious and then we can just respond to that for the hour and a half. You know, I'm just, I'm just trying to think what that could be. Um, I can only answer on a personal basis. Um, software that is transparent to the user. Software that enables um, someone to immediately take hold of uh, compositional skills and then invisibly go deeper and deeper into the possibilities of that software. I think that's a frontier. I think a frontier is the distribution of music um, um, that is not hindered by commercial um, vehicles and institutions. And um, most important, a frontier is what has always existed in musical composition, and that is the personal strength of individuals to express their own feelings and their own musical ideas, um, regardless of what they have been taught or told um, or thought they should write. <laughs> well, that sounds like a wonderful world, John. <laughs> I was I was thinking about that when I was walking up my the stairs this morning, probably about five a.m., and wishing that the lights would just kind of turn on and when I pass by and turn off when I left. And, uh, 
be really soft and moody when I wanted them to be, um, without my having to tell them, but uh, that there would be this really nice symbiotic relationship uh, with me and and whatever technology was uh, happening. Instead, you know, uh, I live in a in an older house. Uh, the wiring probably has to be uh, redone fairly soon because the house is. Uh, going on maybe 150 years old. Um, and um, in the kitchen, there's a refrigerator which works, uh, except that everything in, inside the refrigerator is falling apart, uh, even though the refrigerator is not that old. Um, and so I keep thinking about how uh, for 50 years now, I've been tripping over wires and um, that it's still like that, even though we're in the the deep wireless age, uh, that everything remains just about as difficult as it was <laughs> 50 years ago. <laughs> and so, I mean, I was uh, kind of struck by that as I watched the concert this afternoon. And uh, and there's there's the... In intractable software that uh, uh, is supposed to work really nicely. What is that? That's that's the wind hitting the metal roof. And... What a beautiful sound. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> now, why can't I have a recording of it just as it happens? You know, so that the recorder, the tape recorder, it would just record that for me, you know, so I could have it if I wanted. <laughs> but, you know, this is, this is the, the, the world we dream of, and I believe it was uh, Christopher Penrose who was talking about dr software as dreaming uh, this morning. And uh, so I like to think of, I mean, I like, the, I like those dreams. I think they're very wonderful and that we all should dream uh, dream on but uh, you know the real frontier is how do we enter these dreams or how do the dreams enter us and so I keep wondering about how um, how we are entering the technology the technology is entering us and that's where the uh, I mean it's the relationship and the balance uh, between the living uh, organic matter and uh, the mystery of what it is that we create when we make tools to do things for us. Um, so that's where the frontier is for me. In thinking about this panel, it was kind of interesting because I don't normally think about addressing a frontier and doing my work. I just think about making music and ways that I want to interact with my music. And sometimes when you confront a situation where there's not something in place for you to do that, you might have to invent something or address that situation. And I guess that's a frontier, but it comes sort of out of the artistic process and not sort of something that is external to that, like there's a frontier, I'm going to pursue that. And 
I also think about sort of the, the pioneers when actually many of the people here, it's kind of intimidating being on this panel with many of my teachers and people that I have great respect for. Um, thinking about the various pioneers that, that we would always learn about when, when we were learning about electroacoustic music. Um, think about Max Matthews, who may have invented sort of primary fundamental technologies that allowed us to work in these areas. And many of these problems are greatly solved for us. We can, you know, my iPod has you know, many orders of magnitude more power than the first computers that I worked on for music. And in sort of confronting this situation, it seems as though most of our activities are not in inventing fundamental technologies as they might have been in, in, in an earlier time, but becoming aware of sort of the, the fast changing pace of technologies as they confront us, learning about those things and learning how to co-opt them in order to address our values and things that we find important in music. And I think that's sort of a fundamentally different situation than may have been in an earlier generation of, of work in the field. But for me, most of the frontiers would have to do with how we interact with technology, how we're aware of it, how we're sensitive to the ways that technology alters our, our interaction with time and space, with culture, how it enters our bodies, how our bodies affect it, and how we listen, make music, and exist within this changing world. Thanks. I've, uh, I'm always interested in the ideas that new technology is, gives us rather than the capabilities, the physical capabilities. So I actually think what a new frontier is, is um, uh, an idea that never existed before. And now that sometimes the technology makes, makes uh, gives you some kind of capability that you didn't have before, like the, the first airplane that ever took off, people couldn't fly, and then suddenly uh, they could fly. So the technology in itself is, is interesting, but then, um, then you have to change the entire way you think because suddenly you can fly. And that's where I think the real frontier is for composers is uh, in, in dreaming, well, I'm going back to dreaming, in, in imagining <laughs> all possibilities that you, that you couldn't imagine before because of a certain technology. So I'm, I'm uh, much more, I, I know that we need the technology, we need uh, engineers and computer scientists and a lot of people to, to be giving us the faster computers and things like that. Um, but I, I think the frontier is in, in getting rid of, either getting rid of old concepts or getting rid of uh, things that limit to you, that you think are impossible, and trying things that are impossible. Uh, and then if you actually succeed, uh, that's very exciting. And that's, that is the history of, uh, I think, of electronic music and of technology is um, the history of the ideas that have sometimes generated the technology and sometimes followed it. Well, uh, to my mind, it's, it's very important to distinguish between technological progress and intellectual progress. I, I don't think that they're really, they, they certainly don't move at parallel rates. Uh, I think they're perhaps functionally related, but not, uh, not directly related. There is, there is a functional relation between them. And I'm constantly reminded of one of the earliest experiences I had 
Uh, I think it was like around 1949 or 48, something like that. I was, I was at the point where I, my first memories, and the memory was um, of um, being in the Bronx Zoo at the electric eel display. I still remember there were a lot of tall people all standing around me, and it was getting, getting kind of annoying, and I was a very irritable child, so I was constantly elbowing the people. Um, and we waited there for a long time, and finally a light bulb lit up. <laughs> and I still remember my, my reaction, and if I'd express it now, my reaction was, oh, give me a break. <laughs> so um, that sort of is, I guess, my, my genetic code. Uh, I, I, I got into um, working with computers in the mid-60s at a point where, you know, serialism was really exciting, and and I was, I was quite interested in being able to use the technology to explore things. So we, we really had a feeling that we were at, at the forefront of some uh, deep exploration. And I still, I had the same experience then. Uh, you know, give me a break. It's, you know, I, so I, I used combinatorial tetrachords and combined them in a zillion ways, and it still sounded like shit. So my, my, you know, my experience over the years has constantly been that there's not a direct correlation between uh, how powerful the technology is and um, the sort of musical values that uh, I sort of cherish. Um, and um, another experience I had was I remember uh, hearing uh, this jazz solo by the, uh, jazz uh, recording by the um, drummer, I think Billy Cobham, isn't he a drummer? Yeah, there was a, it was a sensational effect. He, he took a, a, just a synthesizer it was, this must have been 1970, 1968, 69. He took a synthesizer and just sort of swept the bandwidth up and down over a long period of time. And I was, I was stunned at how, uh, you know, at that point I had been working with IBM mainframes and doing all kinds of sophisticated things. And I was stunned at how incredible the effect was and what a sensational, what a sensational idea this was just to do something like this in this context. You know, if you do, if I, my thought experiment was if you had done the same thing at a concert of electronic music, everyone would have sort of laughed and said, you know, give me a break. But uh, in this case, it was really stunning. So these are sort of a set of experiences that I have that uh, reflect my own point of view, my, my perspective, which I think is, is uh, related to Todd's. That is that the, um, this, that the ideas that I really value and cherish are not directly functionally related to technolo technological abilities we have. I do think that uh, an increase in technological capability certainly allows us to conceive of things in ways that we had never thought of before. But still, the musical values that I, I really, uh, that really get me excited are not, uh, the frontier is not defined by the technology. The frontier, to my mind, is defined by uh, the ways in which I can imagine music in, in senses that I hadn't even thought of before. Okay. Um. Would, I just want to say that anyone who would like to can can um, just raise their hand and participate at any time. This is a participatory <coughs> um, discussion too, just as the last one was. But um, for now, is there anything is there anything that was mentioned by uh, by by subsequent or prior folks that anyone else would like <coughs> to address? Or yes. Um. I hear people like Paul talking about 
Um, there's some, some types of things, for instance, if you've heard of a good surround piece, occasionally people have talked about feeling like they're moving or they're falling. They actually have physical sensations from the sound. Um, and um, then there are also visual uh, images and movement that are combined. Uh, for instance, some rides at Disneyland, they have, um, you're actually in an elevator, and the elevator only moves up and down about six inches. And I think it tilts maybe 20 degrees, and as you're, you're watching a very high-speed high chase of a rocket ship or something, and you, you're seeing video of yourself falling 1,000 feet, and the, uh, the elevator that you're sitting on just shifts down four inches, and you believe that you fell 1,000 feet because there's the, the physical sensation of falling. Apparently, the nerve mechanism is, is similar whether you fell 1,000 or just four inches, but you put that together with what you're seeing, and you believe it. Um, so anyway, I'm, I'm bringing up all these, these um, kind of multi-sensory ideas because now that we actually are able to have this in one computer, uh, I, I just can't, I'm just very excited and I think a lot of the people I work with are very excited about the possibilities of having new, creating new types of experience and creating new types of artwork that take advantage of, of physical movement and physical presence in the real world and sound and video or video processing or some kind of other images that are all somehow uh, influencing each other. Uh, Todd, are there musical um, uh, musical activity that is uh, that just as exciting to you today? Is it the musical activity? Yeah, I thought this was a music panel. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, Curtis, do you have a response? Or, uh, oh, do I have a response? I hope. Well, I I think I think that um, I. Th I, I brought in, you know, the multi-sensory idea because I think for composers um, who work with sound that, um, that we're dealing with time, with time base, and some c composers are also dealing with um, movement and sound as a kind of uh, instrument, as, instru as a gestural controller. So um, I, I specifically preface that this is an area that gets away from purely dealing with music but incorporates these other types of of uh, senses into being able to uh, have new, new types of expression. Can I just re reply to one thing? Um, yeah, John's question, uh, though, really goes to the, sort of the heart of, of my perception. There are two different kinds of magic, in a sense, and the magic you're talking about is sort of technological magic, and I think the magic that uh, John and I are talking about is the magic of musical moments. And uh, I, I, you know, it's true that uh, these technological wonders can certainly give us an illusion of, of some sort of magical musical experience. But, um, you know, still, I, I, I feel there's a tenuous connection, you know, mm. and that the things that, as I say, the <clears throat> things that uh, really interest me so much about, about art and literature and music in general have very little to do with the magic that's, that's being created technologically. It has much more to do with my, uh, with the interaction between my perceptions and the um, imagination of, you know, a really good creator in one sense or another. I, th I think actually, getting back to John's question, I think my, re my response, which was a little bit long-winded, um, I admit, was uh, that, that people aren't excited, that, that they're not excited about um, new things, or what you said, that, that uh, in, in the 68, there was this feeling that um, anything was possible, you could try anything, that there was this incredible excitement about, um, about people experimenting. And I actually, that, I see that. I think, I think that's actually happening right now. Um, so. In music? 
Well, um, I, you know, where I am, I'm, I'm, seeing, I'm seeing the boundaries of music. I'm seeing the boundaries of the various art forms um, getting thinner and thinner. And that, um, so, um, uh, I, guess I don't understand. Are, I don't understand that. For me, music is something I hear. How is that boundary getting thinner? How is the boundary getting thinner? Um, well, I'm just using your words. Well, I don't. I don't necessarily. I, I think there is a new type of work that's that's evolving that is not necessarily strictly sound or strictly images or strictly movement. There that there are interdisciplinary or new new types of work that are evolving that actually do include music, but they include other things. So that's what I'm talking about. But I don't think music is disappearing or going away. And one could also say that for many people, music is not only strictly something that comes to them through their ears, but also is a complete cultural experience, taking in eyes and all of their senses. But one thought that I had that made tie together the thoughts about dreaming and thoughts that John had and thoughts that, that Todd was talking about. Um, when you consider like Perry Cook's work with human computer interfaces for music, and you consider this unified multimedia computer, still we're talking about these things as being rather externalized to us. And there's a transformation that I experience when I play where the complexity of my interface and the the way in which the computer articulates my dreams of what music could be transforms the way that I'm able to think about music and it extends my, my musical imagination in real time in performance. And so this, what Todd is talking about is not just technology and, and you know, and he's talking about multi-sensory coordination coming from, from these dynamic algorithmic dreams. I think that, that these things are unified and transform us in more ways than just segregating, you know, well, if I hear it, then that's music, and if it's in a machine, well, that's technology. But the embodiment of these technologies and the way in which they extend our imaginations and enable us to conceive of new ways to interact with each other musically is a fundamentally different thing that I don't think has ever happened before. I wonder, <clears throat> uh, John, have have you uh, have you been transformed by music? You bet. Could you talk about a uh, a moment of transformation that came through music? Just, I would be interested in hearing that. When I talk about a transformation that occurred through music in my life, then it, it relates directly to emotional experience that I've had, to music that has made me um, reflect more deeply on my life and to make me feel like I am part of that musical experience, whether it's something I composed or something that Rachmaninoff composed, um, it makes me f transcend my everyday humanness and makes me believe um, in something greater than I am. That's a little too trite. Um, it's hard to express it. 
but um, I think it's about the only thing in my life beside my children that I would never give up. I wouldn't mind if I never ate again. I don't care if I'd never see again. I mean, of course, I might like to, but um, but if the power that music has on my soul and on my feelings, I don't think I could live without that. I don't know if that's a transforming experience. Well, I can <clears throat> I can speak directly to it because I can remember. Um, the first time I ever heard, uh, well, the first time I heard a piece of mine uh, performed that I had, I had written and imagined uh, what it would might sound like, and it was a simple piece. It was for violin and piano, and I was uh, 19 years old, and uh, it happened that uh, the pianist happened to be my mother. Uh, and the violinist was uh, a, a violinist from the Houston Symphony who came and they, they played this piece in, in the uh, composition class at the University of Houston. And when I heard them play it, um, there was uh, a feeling that came over me. There was a sensation. There was uh, energy moving in my body. There was uh, an experience that I can only describe as ecstatic, uh, euphoric. I must, there must have been a lot of endorphins released. In <laughs> and uh, it, it, uh, it certainly was a transformative experience. That was, that was a key experience for me because I, uh, I stopped going to any classes that didn't have anything to do with music at that point. And uh, I only wanted to just uh, uh, compose music. And to have that feeling, and that particular moment uh, is what has driven my uh, career uh, through now, and it's it's those uh, uh, those moments I think uh, of transformation because that truly was a transformation for me, uh, and uh, a motivation and a connection. Uh, and it, it, it didn't in, uh, involve only myself, it involved the interaction with the performance of the music, you know, and the way that it was played. It was played with great love, with, for one thing. Uh, only a mother could love <laughs> that piece, right? <laughs> but but it, it really did uh, 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 do that for me. And so that's that's what I uh, continue to uh, to look for, whether whatever the technology uh, we may be dealing with, um, and so that, that those moments come uh, uh, when when you are pushing a frontier, because writing a piece at all was uh, was a tremendous frontier for me at 19 who had never had any kind of training to to do any kind of composing. Um, I had been trained to, to be a performer. Um, and, I mean, that's the way music education is. You, you're trained to perform music, uh, and usually music that's been written uh, long ago, 
traditional music. Uh, you're trained to appreciate or criticize music, but you're not trained to uh, for composing music or improvising music or for making musical instruments uh, or for for creating new technology uh, to make music. So all of these things that I've just mentioned are certainly frontiers, uh, but the relationship of intentionality and motivation and spirituality, I think uh, it's, it's a complex web, and it's not always easy to, um, to articulate. But uh, for me, that's where um, the frontier uh, remains, uh, always is there. Trudy, did you want to say something? Did nobody hear that? Everyone heard that. I just want to say I'm a grandmother, one of the ordinary people, not from academia, with 20 grandchildren. I want to tell you in the 30s, I thought I was doing very exciting things. I lived in New Jersey. I used to come by bus to New York City. I heard Stravinsky. I heard Tchaikovsky, Chostakovich. That was a very exciting time. I didn't think anything could be better than when I was 16. I want to assure this lovely gentleman that now I hang out with my grandchildren. I am having more fun. The rock concerts are something never seen before. They have lights. They have all kinds of new things. Now I will tell you something in a more serious vein. I'm very involved with New England Conservatory and the jazz community. And I was personally putting on seminars at the New England Conservatory on improvisation. We couldn't get one single person from classical departments. I just was there this couple weeks ago. They have improvisation for classical students. That's pioneering in the classical department. And I want to tell you that I think <clears throat> what I'm seeing now, other than my grandchildren's experience, that improvisation is becoming very, very popular. I was improvising with the Boy Scouts, the Girl Scouts. If any of you remember the, the songs we used to sing, you know, very, we used to do silly dances. Well, I'm finding now that audiences are listening to this kind of stuff on the stage. So we are in a great period, really. And pure music, I don't even know what that is. It's just we're out to have fun, we want to enjoy ourselves, and we want to have some kind of an experience. If it's mixed media, it's all the better for me. Excuse me, and thank you. I just want to—I could follow up on the, the improvisation uh, idea because that's another. We're talking about trends um, or the future, and that's another thing that I've just been seeing. Is I suppose at one point doing computer music, um, electronic music, even in the early days, 
people were able to improvise and it was real time. And the previous panel talked about real time systems. So finally, the, the computers are fast enough and flexible enough to, for people to start developing interactive um, improvisational systems for themselves. Uh, and in the computer music, in the computer world anyway, that's relatively new. It's not very new. But what I'm seeing is that every one of my students is um, developing a way of expressing themselves musically. Musically, John, not, not visually. Um, and it's, it's their world that they've created for themselves and uh, that, that sometimes they're playing by themselves and sometimes they're playing with other people. But it's gotten to the point where they're starting to be spontaneous and they have built a kind of interface for themselves or a world where they can live for a while and get, and get practice and get chops and get skills and be able to um, listen carefully to other people they're playing with and be able to respond to them without the um, intellectual uh, confusion or the intellectual layer of programming and having to think, to, to think about the technology. Uh, instead, they're, I, I mean, Curtis is, a great example, I'm sitting next to one of the, one of the two, two people, uh, and, and Pauline as well. Um, I was just thinking, because I just saw Curtis perform, that he's um, able to very quickly find ideas, go with ideas, um, and I don't ever see the technology tripping you up at this point anyway. It probably does, I, at least I didn't, I didn't see it. But I think, I think that's um, uh, something that is going on now. Do you, maybe you and Pauline have some follow-up to that about improvisation well, and computers. Well, I can, I can speak to improvisation because um, uh, it was 1957, 56, 57, I guess, um, that uh, my friends uh, Terry Riley and Lauren Rush and myself went into the studio at uh, Radio KPFA in Berkeley, and uh, Terry was... Uh, in trouble, he had a film score to write, a five-minute soundtrack for a film score, and he didn't have time to compose it. So we went in and sat down and improvised several five-minute tracks, and then uh, Terry uh, ch chose one and used it for the film. And <clears throat> then we realized that, uh, oh, we had done this, and so we started meeting and improvising. And uh, I have to tell you, there was no one around in those days who was doing any kind of improvisation from art music. So we were kind of at the so-called frontier <laughs> with that. And uh, I can remember, I mean, we, we got really kind of excited about, about it. We realized that uh, music would organize itself, and we sound that... Uh, if we tried to mess with it before we did it, that it would always fall flat, and that if we would just sit down and improvise together and, uh, and then talk about it later, that it worked out a lot better. Uh, and so we, we did that for uh, maybe a year or so before everybody departed in different directions. And uh, I continued to work um, uh, with improvisation, and so did Terry and uh, Lauren, but um, and now the scene in San Francisco, uh, there's improvisation on every street corner, uh, <laughs> and I mean it's really quite wonderful. I mean, the, the, and there's a you know a community of, of improvisers who uh, who have crossed over or from from one kind of music to another. Um, and there's a complete 
kind of mixing of styles and genres and um, uh, uh, musics. Um, and this, this I think, is, is a wonderful development. Um, it has, has not been sanctioned uh, in educational institutions uh, very much. Uh, Trudy's mentioning the New England Conservatory having it now. And uh, Mills College has uh, Fred Frith teaching improvisation uh, there. Uh, but it, it, still is, it still is a thread in music that is, is, uh, is quite revolutionary. Uh, and there's, there is still quite a lot of uh, reaction uh, uh, to it from the musical establishment, whatever it is, whatever that is. Uh, it might be interesting to know what the frontiers in uh, established traditional music are at this moment, too. In looking at sort of the confluence of improvisation and real-time algorithmic composition, um, it's interesting. I, my background was as a jazz musician for many years before I even came to computer music. My father was a pioneer of medical imaging and, and computer science. And he used to ask me what I thought about when I improvised. I would try to explain sort of holding dynamic structures between various participants in a group and hearing, you know, when they're diverting and, and sort of manipulating these, these shared visions of where we were in, in different improvisational structures. And he would ask me to explain parts of that to him, and he would write computer code that would try to realize that this was quite some time ago. This was maybe the late 70s, early 80s on a little TRS-80 computer or something like that. And um, in doing that, he started a process in me of, of a sort of a dynamic feedback loop of trying to figure out what I was doing, articulating it through a dynamic computer program and then listening to it and, and saying, well, that something's missing in that model. And that hooked me for, you know, I'm still trying to answer his question, you know, 30 years later. You know, how do I think about improvisation? And in the process of trying to articulate different kinds of structures within a computer program, first of all, you know, realized out of real time, and now, as Todd was talking about, realized, you know, dynamically through a, a f embodied physical interface, there was a, a great change where the conception of the improvisational structures became the conception of the articulation of musical structures through a computer program. And when you're playing, you're conceiving of, of these dynamic articulations of what music could be, and the possibilities are, are so vast, and this is what I was talking about before, about how it transforms the way that you can realize your ideas and, and sort of enter into a whole different kind of dynamic structure. And so Improvisation is sort of a, a, a really interesting test case or crucible of, of, of this question. I think that my father asked me many years ago, like, what are you thinking about when you're thinking about music? And how can you enter those structures and manipulate them spontaneously in order to interact and have a musical conversation with some other person? So the, the confluence of improvisation and computer-aided composition makes a, a really unusual and, and interesting frontier, I think, in terms of electroacoustic music. Do you feel that, that 
that there are, that that constitutes the the kind of uh, system that you contend with and against in in order to um, I mean we we were talking in earlier also about transparency in software and in controllers how I mean if if it were if we could have a music if we did have technology that allowed us to dream and dream the music perfectly that our deepest most souls conceived of you know would that be a good thing given that we spend um, I don't know how to say this but that so much of music is is in pre-composition or in algorithmic composition is designing a system that has um, that's difficult in some way and that comp as composers we often try to find situations that are that that are kind of like idea spaces that um, will articulate our what we do naturally in a new way and therefore produce you know new material I don't know if there's a question in that <laughs> but um, is it is it um, I guess is it is it valuable to you to um, oh God I can't sorry um, this is a nonlinear moment it's maybe uh, you think you understand yeah I think one analogy is watching last night we're on the road and I was in a hotel room and sort of thinking about these things and there was a, a documentary on the Wright brothers and they were talking about the development of the flying machine and how many large governmental sponsored projects were not really concerned about navigation but sort of the stability of the flying machine and that the Wright brothers working in a bicycle shop were very concerned with you know the idea of the coupling of the human navigation on a, on a bicycle and that, that, that their idea was that that navigation was the key and that the whole system was one instead of, of stability one of of a very unstable system coupled the machine the machine was very unstable you know, two wheels and a very delicate balance coupled with the driver whose intelligence and coordination would then be able to dynamically adjust and lean and move and drive the bicycle and that many of those ideas about sort of the dynamic coupling of, of sort of the mind and the machine in order to make sort of streamlined, simple system. Um, that in some way addresses, I think, what you're talking about, like the, the importance of, of sort of simple improvisational systems as being very unstable, but then coupled with, with sort of a dynamic leaning and driving and maneuvering creates a new situation in terms of how we can navigate technology or music. <clears throat> well, I always wanted the, I want, I want the technology to dream too. <laughs> <laughs> Which it does. Well, that's what earlier it does do, Huh? Oh, I was just saying that earlier you said, you know, you just change a variable and it dreams slight variations on the That's dream. right. It does do that. And that's uh, that's how I worked with my, uh, made, made my electronic music in the 60s. Because um, I was uh, taking my improvisation right into the studio, um, uh, into the so-called classical electronic music studio. And our, um, our studio at the San Francisco Tape Music Studio was really funky. And, uh, you know, it was made of uh, test equipment and 
uh, Patch Bay and uh, uh, I think we had uh, Duck In and Duck Out, <laughs> something, maybe some filters, I don't know. But I, uh, I, um, I set up a system that was very unstable because it was uh, taking um, the... Hewlett, the Hewlett-Packard oscillators, those big tube oscillators, and setting them uh, above the range of hearing so that they would generate difference tones, and uh, then running them into a tape delay system, so which was uh, um, a tape delay between two big uh, reel-to-reel tape machines, those big Ampex 351s. And uh, uh, then the difference tones that were generated by the um, uh, oscillators were also beating together with the bias frequencies of the tape recorders. So there was, uh, there was all this instability. And <clears throat> the thing that I, that I loved was that, that the, the big dials on the, uh, on, the, on the oscillators, instead of having to turn them and turn them to, to change frequency, which was I mean, silly because you couldn't do anything with that. As soon as you had them uh, in this unstable relationship, you could sweep the whole audio range just by making a little move like that. So then your hands became super sensitive. And uh, um, you didn't know, I didn't know what was going to, to come out if I, if I made a move. You know, and if I made a move, then I would have to interact with it instantaneously. And so, in that way, the the system was dreaming with me. You know, it was very nonlinear. You mentioned, yes, <laughs> it, it was doing that. I was pointing to the oh, to the, no, the sound. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, I um, I'm sitting here thinking about things, particularly that uh, Todd and Curtis are talking about. And, uh, yeah, it, it's, you're, you're absolutely right. They're really exciting. And, uh, you know, this, there's, there are real senses in which these are, these are opening up possibilities that never existed before, and they're changing the way we think about things. But I want to I back off a little bit and uh, take a look just historically at some of the perspectives people had on new technologies as they evolved. For example, uh, when recording first evolved in the end of the 19th century, um, it was really thought of, it, people, Edison, for example, didn't really think of recording as having anything to do with music, thought of as a way to communicate with the dead. <laughs> Essentially, it was a notation, and the first thoughts that people had, you know, it really wasn't until, I bet you it really wasn't until after or just around the time of World War II that recording really started to become a, a musical conception. Uh, and so, you know, we're talking about 50 or 60 years in which our conception of what kinds of things were enabled by the technology sort of evolved. Uh, and music concrete, for example, is a, a really quite a, a, a radical jump in a sense because it regards recording as a primary experience. It doesn't regard, regard recording as a notation. Even in the 40s and 30s, recording was regarded as a notation. Now, now all of a sudden, some, some people sort of imagine, uh, you know, recording as a primary experience. Um, similarly, if you, if you think about film, uh, for example, the kinds of things that happened in film over a long period of time, not, you know, they didn't, they didn't happen over 20 years between 19, 
11 to 1939. They really happened uh, all, all the way to today. We're, we're, we're slowly evolving our perceptions uh, of what, of how events relate to time and how we relate to time and how events are related uh, structurally to each other in various ways. You know, you, you see, like one thing that I always, I, know, I think is really cute that we, just, it's just a trivial example that we don't really, uh, people don't really notice. You, you see a scene in a film and uh, either the scene continues while the sound from the next scene comes in or the scene uh, continues, or, or the sound, the sound of the scene continues over the entry of a new scene. You know, this is is really a radical thing that I think would have shocked people a long time ago. But it, it reflects an evolution in our perceptions of how things function. And I guess my point in in saying all this is that there's that um, I think we're a little too self-congratulatory about the marvels of technology today. Um, it's true, everything you say is true. You know, I, I always tell the story of how um, just basically in Curtis's lifetime at Princeton, we, we paid $35,000 for 740 megabytes of disk space. Uh, so, you know, uh, it, this, this, I'm staggered by the things that are happening and I think you're absolutely right that there are new, new things that are happening, but I think it's good to have a larger perspective. I think it's good to sort of back away and uh, think on timescales that are not, you know, Moore's Law. Think on timescales that are sort of a generation or a lifetime and look at how things evolved there. So a lot of the things that, um, I, the reason I raised the example in the 60s is because a lot of the things that we thought computers would be really great at, um, they're good at and it turns out to be trivial. Um, and, you know, anyway, point made. instruments at, uh, well, sorry, at an astounding rate in, in many cases. But if you look at, say, you know, playing an instrument to really, or to really master any one instrument is incredibly difficult and requires years and years of dedication and experience to become, you know, a, some sort of a mature artist with that, and the the frontier doesn't, uh, it seems to me that it doesn't happen so much when the technology is made as when we begin to internalize, internal internalize it to a point where we think and react to it in a much deeper, deeper way, and I, I, don't, I don't know, I mean, Part of me wonders, you know, I mean, in, in many ways, electronic music is still in, not maybe not infancy, but in a very, it's in constant, a state of constant flux. Early adolescence is my. Yeah. Fair, fair, fair enough. I was wondering, you know, you know, a frontier would be, you know, when, when we are, you know, how long would it take before, you know, you can sense like a real, a really deep, mature, consistency of work of art almost. I don't know if that makes any sense. I'm just kind of processing. But anyway, that, that's about it. Anybody else? 
One thing, maybe. Oh, did you? Somebody there? Yes, I'm I did, I did that exact thing in, when I was a graduate student here. The series of screens coordinating people playing uh, composed and improvised music. But. Yeah. Well, it <clears throat> mostly it's lack of infrastructure. Uh, when when the Wright brothers flew, there weren't any airports, and <laughs> you know. And uh, when Amelia Earhart flew, and so on, uh, they were they were they were flying through these boundaries and uh, uh, borders. And so, so we all are and have been through this, uh, through the last century, and now into this century. Uh, and the the most frustrating thing I think that I can experience these days is lack of in infrastructure. Uh, things that I would like to do and and that ought to be able to be done, just as you're speaking of. There's there's simply it's it's simply not. Uh, 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 set up, you know, to do, and and that's why I begin this panel talking about tripping over wires, <laughs> because uh, here I am, you know, at the at the latter part of my career after after 50 years, and I'm still tripping over wires and setting things up, trying every time I uh, do a concert, it has to be, um, uh, you know, it, it's a new space and. Uh, the problems to solve are always a little different, and, uh, and somebody doesn't have a transformer. And if you're in Europe, and or you forgot yours, and uh, uh, you know there there are lots of uh, of obstacles because uh, we haven't got there yet. You know we're on the way, but on, where we're on the way to is a little bit um, fuzzy, um, and there's. Uh, there's a lot, there's a lot to talk about in that area, I think. Yeah. yeah, I'd like to continue that thought about frontier. 
and I believe that the frontier has to do with the individual um, feeling strong enough, courageous enough, crazy enough to pursue what they believe the music should be and should be most meaningful to them without feeling obligated to fit in. Um, when I think about most of the musical pioneers, uh, they weren't doing something that everybody thought was cool. They were doing something quite original and striking and lonely. Um, and I'm not speaking of Stravinsky in his attic in Paris. Um, I'm thinking of something as simple as CPE box keyboard sonatas. When you look at what his father was writing and then what he wrote, they are generations apart. Here was someone who really had the courage to do something quite radical and took a lot of abuse for it. Um, and I think that in young composers today, there is such pressure to do something that's cool or, or to avoid something that's not cool <laughs> that the real frontier is the ability to develop the courage to do something that you yourself believe in. Well, can I add something to that? I, I like, yeah, I'm glad you brought the term pioneer in because I think that's a concomitant part of frontier. And the thing that, um, the thing that occurs to me all the time is the notion of taking risks. Um, I, I hate to sound like an old fogey, but uh, at, at, the risk of, at the risk of sounding like an old fogey, I'll say I don't, I don't think, I don't see enough risk-taking uh, to, to make me happy at, um, you know, in the field in general. Um, I don't. I see people pushing at the edge of technology in very safe ways, uh, in ways that are kind of comfortable, and they're commutish, and you know they're friendly, and and they're cool. Uh, but I I I I would like to see more of a sort of a. Um, I'd like to see, especially I'd like to see anybody, not just young people, taking a gamble on something and seeing whether you know, if you if you. Do this, it'll, uh, my, my favorite, well, at the risk of, uh, anyway. Um, I think, for example, the kind of thing that goes on at IRCAM and Darmstadt is not inherent, is not, is not particularly risk-taking. Uh, I don't see uh, institutions uh, as encouraging risk. I see them as sort of reinforcing boundaries that define themselves. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, Aircom is, is involved in risk management. Yeah. Um, my favorite example is, well, never mind. Come on, tell us an example. Oh, I, I do the thought example. You know, I, like I, I heard, I was in, in, um, in Denmark a couple of years ago, and in Europe, young composers earn their stripes by going to Darmstadt or Aircom. That's, you know, essentially... There's good things going on at these places. They're, they're very strong places, you know. And, um, but uh, then there was a piece on the same festival by uh, 
Peres Norgard, is that right? The older Scandinavian Norgard. 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 Yeah, Per Norgard. Uh, it was a wonderful piece for oboe and digital delay, and it just blew me away. It was really beautiful. I think I'm pretty sure I got it. And I just sort of did the thought experiment of the revolving door at IRCOM. You know, Per Norgard comes in wanting to do a piece for digital delay in oboe, and I see him coming in the door and being shot out at the speed of a cannon. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, there is a cold question of taking risk. No, then, then there's those who never even got in the door. That's right. Well, I've never been there. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, then, what is the place of an institution that is teaching uh, music, computer music, any art form? Then, if not, I mean, if they're not encouraging risk over at Darmstadt and Arcom, are we encouraging risk here? And if we are encouraging risk, um, are we seeing enough of it? Are we not seeing enough of it? Um, that's an open question. Really, my opinion is we should take risks on lots of them. <laughs> um, so I'm going to get rid of the microphone now. Well, I think. Um, I was thinking about what um, Pauline was saying about the the frustration of lack of infrastructure. Um, and then in conjunction more with what we've been talking about, about risk-taking. And it, it seems to me that you sort of have to take both at the same time. You, you kind of get the, we're not there yet. But I don't know if, we'd be, if we got there, then I don't think we'd be taking risks. And so I think it's an interesting place to be where it's sort of uncomfortable. I, I think the uncomfort, the discomfort of lack of in, infrastructure in some way maybe mirrors the discomfort of taking risks and sort of being off on your own and that those two somehow seem to go hand in hand. I don't know, just sort of an open comment. That's right. Well, I think uh, uh, having a supportive, having a supportive in infrastructure sort of, I, I don't see it as sort of directly related to the notion of taking risk. I think taking risk sometimes means defining a space for yourself which specifically doesn't have an infrastructure. Yeah, uh, for example, um, Karl-Heinz Stockhausen, particularly as a young man, uh, took many risks, and he also had an infrastructure that supported him mightily. Another Americ an American who took huge risks Harry Parch had no infrastructure to support him. But I respect both of those composers for the risks they took. I think I'm too comfortable with silence to be a moderator. <laughs> Don't meditate for a moment. Yes. <laughs> well, maybe one. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Since I have the microphone in my hand, I guess I'll just go ahead and ask a question. Um, this whole idea of front, frontiers, you were also talking about improvisation. 
Um, do you see through the technology we have a sort of potential for improvisation through an electronic medium in the sense that one person is in one location and another person is in another? And that they basically exchange music, exchange musical ideas through a technology that is faster or through a connection that's faster than the speed at which they can think and process their music and play it, so that basically there's a real-time, spontaneous sort of jam session going on through, let's say, the internet or just through between different rooms, something that hasn't really been done before, but that could easily happen with the technology that exists today. I just have a, I actually have pretty strong feelings about that because I've been to lots of conferences where <laughs> Um, or several conferences where people dragged over incredibly expensive equipment and spent hours and hours setting it up, and we're going we're gonna to improvise between San Diego and Greece or, you know, Thessaloniki. This is going to be great. This is going to be so great because we can improvise halfway across the world. And half the time it doesn't work at all. And then when it works, I always think, that wasn't better. It would be, it would be much better to have the person here. Uh, there, there, in other words, I didn't see an idea. There wasn't any reason to do that other than distance. And, um, and I thought, was that a better performance? Uh, and I, I, I'm waiting. I know there are some ideas. Again, getting back to ideas, I know there are some ideas that require people to be in different places in order to make this better than if they were together. But merely just, I'm going to play here and you're going to play in another uh, city, other than saving on plane flight, I mean, the, the tech, setting up these, these expensive systems is twice as much as, as a, the cost of a, of a cheap plane ticket right now. So, um, I mean, no, having somebody there and seeing them sweat and having a beer afterwards to talk about the performance or taking a break and coming back, I, that's so much better. Um, so, when I'm, I, still, I know there's some idea out there that requires it and it's going to be great. And I still haven't seen it yet. What a hmm. <laughs> well, Todd. <laughs> Do you have one? I've I have been working with distance technology since 1990. And uh, the, um, the first, first uh, instance of that was with video telephone. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, uh, this is, you know, another kind of frontier where video telephone didn't take off with the public, so it wasn't really, really supported. Um, uh, and but but video telephone is was was pretty interesting uh, because you could uh, you could hook up uh, well in fact I did um, a celebration for 40 years of composing in in 1991 where there were, there were six cities involved and there were, all the cities were connected into a telephone bridge and and each city. A friend of mine curated a concert that was uh, uh, in celebration of my 40 years of composing. I was at home in my living room, and we broadcast from there for 20 minutes. And uh, then in New York from Experimental Media, uh, Guy Klosevic uh, curated the whole evening there. That was uh, a 20-minute broadcast from there. And uh, then in Houston, uh, my mother who has always been involved with my career, participated and read a letter from me <laughs> from uh, uh, a long time ago, uh, plus other things. And then there was San Diego, uh, and then Los Angeles, and, uh, and finally Oakland, which was a combination of San Francisco and Oakland. And um, so there were these uh, wonderful uh, transmissions that took place. So the audio was 
uh, carried on the telephone lines, uh, and that that's not terribly high bandwidth. Um, so, you know, if your your high fidelity standards are compromised, um, but but nevertheless, the audio came through very well, and um, the video was really interesting because it was slow scan. And which meant that there was still images that updated every five seconds. So uh, in five seconds, you could change things very considerably so that uh, the, there were some really startling moments in the, in the video stills that would come through. So after the 20-minute uh, broadcasts uh, from the six cities, then there was a six-city improvisation that took place. And this was very interesting, too, because... Uh, whoever was playing the loudest would would grab the uh, telephone line, and so uh, the the uh, coordinator, who was Joe Catalano, um, you know, asked everyone to be sensitive to that particular issue. And there were just some 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 very wonderful things that happened in the improvisation and the images. Uh, you didn't know where they were going to be coming from next. And it was uh, it was a real fun project, and all of those tapes are still um, waiting now to to be edited into some kind of document because there was the the live uh, I mean the camera uh, that was uh, operating. There were the uh, videos that were received in the different locations. Uh, so there's I don't know something like uh, twelve different tapes, uh, maybe more. I, uh, to be edited into a uh, document of that, uh, a documentary of that project. There's a description of it in Leonardo Music Journal. Uh, from there, uh, uh, I began working with Picture Tell, and uh, the Deep Listening Band uh, did a concert with. Uh, uh, we were in the, at the kitchen and, and performed with a group in Paris, uh, and at the same night, uh, also performed with a group in Toronto. And uh, there were some some interesting moments and things that happened that wouldn't happen if you were uh, in the same place. So you have to to think about um, the fact is that, that none of that could have happened without that technology from a distance. Um, and yes, it's not as satisfactory as uh, say. To, uh, having that nice, sweaty, uh, warm feeling and, and uh, uh, camaraderie. But there was different kind of camaraderie that happened. Went on to do a, um, a, a deep listening band concert where Stuart Dempster was in Seattle, I was in Evanston, Illinois, and uh, David Gamper was in New York at the kitchen. Um, and so there were three phantom trios i mean with a soloist in each place with a, with a, you know life size screens of of the other two members of the ensemble and there were three audiences and uh, and the cameras of course could could pan the audiences and uh, you, so the audiences could see one another which also had a lot of interesting uh, things for example uh, there was a mother in my audience whose daughter was in Seattle, uh, um, and they managed to connect with one another and, and some other connections like that. But um, And the music, the audience in, in Evanston uh, was totally fascinated 
I mean, I I know you know you, you can tell when an audience is interested in what you're doing, and <clears throat> this this medium uh, this uh, this thing that was happening was simply very very gripping for them, and um, so I I think there's there's something to be mined in this kind of virtual uh, world. I mean, we we're all dealing with virtual worlds all the time. I mean, the, the, there's the virtuality of dreaming and uh, of daydreaming, of, of memory, uh, of imagination, of uh, watching a TV show uh, or listening to the radio, I mean, and being uh, and, and perceiving uh, many, many spaces at once, multidimensional listening. There's something now, you know. I mean, that's that doesn't belong in this particular uh, reality that we're uh, sharing at the moment. But it nevertheless is there, and we're perceiving it and uh, entering into a different dimension. So, I I think of of um, distance technology as something to be explored and and uh, to uh, begin to learn how to to um, Go deeper into virtual space. Um, I'm not saying virtual reality because that's a different uh, animal that's happening, but that all that too. But uh, I think that the the ability to be able to work with people uh, wherever they are is a is a fascinating uh, uh, thing to do. Can I just follow up on that? I, I, I probably phrased it a little wrong. I'm um, I was thinking about what Paul said about the early days of film, and, and I really do want to see something that is entirely necessary to use this technology for it. I probably made it sound like I didn't think it was important, but in fact, um, I think we are at those er, you know, maybe pre-adolescent ages where the first, the first thing that people did with film was to, um, to shoot, a, a, well, yeah, pornography, <laughs> but, before, but you know, to have, a, to have a play going on and to shoot, to shoot a scene from a play, to shoot something that was familiar um, before the film evolved. And I, I, I feel a little bit like the, um, the idea of playing in remote sites. People are still, they're, they're, well, there's more going on, but the first thing to do that's obvious is I'm going to play here and you're going to play there and we'll see each other. But I, I, ha I have a feeling there's so much more that can happen. And exactly what you said about being in the virtual space, once all these people in different cities mm -hmm. are together, um, there's, there's so much more that you can, once they're there together in, in, in numerical form, mm -hmm. there's a lot more that you can do than just simply have them show up on the other end. And that's the part I'm really interested in, some kind of artwork that, that yeah. needs that um, somehow manipulation or trans, translation of ideas or something un different that's going to happen in, instead of um, merely an image showing up, although that, as you, as I hear you say now, that's a pretty powerful um, event in and of itself to be. Had. I think yes. You know, uh, the, 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 what Todd is saying, uh, I think, is interesting in the in the in this sense that um, the sort of previous models of music making were actually pretty lonely. That is, you know, a composer would write a piece and it would be performed, and sort of the the, the social life of the composer was kind of uh, isolated. My, my first, my first uh, 
reason for getting into computer music in general back in the late 60s and early 70s was just that it improved my, my social life tremendously. You know, I play my work for people as I was doing it, and I wasn't uh, sort of holed up writing these little dots on a page with lines on them and then throwing them to the, to the players. Uh, and I, I, I do think that this whole business of being able to communicate long distances uh, is sort of another manifestation of a, a way in which the social aspects of music are increasing, and the whether or not they're successful, I think, is, is beside the point. The, the fact is that the, the communications technology allows us now, all of a sudden, to have a much more intensive social life. I mean, just think of you know your 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 email, for example, besides mm -hmm. the spam. Well, you know, every night on the non nightly news, you know, bringing in pe people and places uh, from all over the world, just think what it would be if if artists had the opportunity to work with such <laughs> such equipment, you know, and such technology. Uh, the networks have it. We don't. We're getting it. <laughs> One issue maybe going, even going back to Paul's statement about of stepping back and, and not being too self-congratulatory about about what's going on with technology up to what we're talking about now may bring to question sort of the role of the composer, musician, artist in society. I mean, when we think about the frontier, we sort of conjures up images of going out somewhere, going to the great Midwest and exploring a frontier. But, you know, these technologies are exploding at exponential rates, like all around us and through us, it's as though the you know the Great Plains are sort of erasing parts of the building and and going out right where we are. The the technologies are are becoming you know increasingly present and intrusive. You know issues of surveillance, homeland security, everything that's going on, are addressing us. Um, especially you know young composers. We're talking about risk taking. You know, and you know these incredible changes in our society are happening through us and, and around us at, at all times. And one thing that we might be able to do is to sort of pose fundamental questions that can either drive research or um, sort of claim technological space or provide a, a critical framework for what's going on around us, sort of question what's going on. Maybe, you know, we talk about what was going on in the 60s. Well, that was really vibrant. You know, they're questioning certain things. Maybe the Italian futurists in the machine age. You know, there's things going on right now that our questions, our activities can sort of draw to light. Um, in working with Pauline um, the last couple semesters at RPI when she's been trying to do distance performance, she's throwing incredible monkey wrenches into the whole development of the I2 network across Canada and, and America. She has demands of the kind of presence, the kind of exchange of acoustic space that, that she would expect in order to have a, a, a good listening situation with somebody remotely. And the technology's not there, and, and her demand for those things is driving the way in which these technologies are developed in order to address our traditional musical values and expectations, our sensitivities. So all of these things, I think, it's not necessarily a question of, well, is this a good idea or it's fun or it's cute or it's cool or something, but maybe it's sort of a, a responsibility for the young composers, for all of us, you know, to ask these questions, to demand these, these things or to comment critically on, on the ways in which sort of maybe commercially and um, militarily funded technological growth is affecting our ability to 
to maintain our musical values. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, we have about three minutes left, so um, would anyone here like to say anything? Uh, I'd, like, I'd like to. I'd like to. to Withdraw. I, the term musical values um, is not a good one. <laughs> yeah, it's not a good the, one. It sounds too much like that, family values. Well, the, you know? the things that. You know, what I'm trying to get at is what you're no, saying. No, I'm not. I, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. And I, I, I was the one who used the term first today. Oh, okay, and good. I'm trying. I'm trying to. I'm trying. I'm trying <laughs> Take to, it back. Um, I, I'd say those more or less the things I like about music. Maybe uh, that's a better one. Anyway, that's. One word. One word. Mm -hmm. The word that I want to say, that I think you whispered it, magic <laughs> is very important in music for us, for the audience. And this is my baby sister. I came all the way from Mexico. I was so excited about this idea in the kitchen. She's going to be with someone in Paris. And then I even brought a pianist, the jazz pianist, Dave Burrell. He was very excited. So we in the audience love magic. That is a good note to end on. Um, could we just thank the panelists for...